My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. assumes that we've closed the books on the paranormal, still much remains to be explained, from the unsolved disappearances that haunt loved ones and the detectives who solve these cases, to the spectral phantoms who provoke shrieks in the night, wild men who lurk in the woods, or legendary visions of giants, serpents, monsters, or beasts. The unexplained is not solely limited to our surroundings, our liminal exterior. Within us exists an entire realm of unexplained, ESP, deja vu, and even soul ascension by way of UFOs. Close enough to be unexplained, not far enough to be unknown. All existing under the stars, moon, and sun, and not unknown to today's guest, Phantom Phil, host and creator of Unexplained Incorporated. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Phantom Phil. Using those hard drugs constantly, I think, will invite negative entities into your being and may lead to oppression and possession. So it's debatable as to whether how many of these people were just really messed up on hard drugs or how many of them actually had demonic presence or entities taking over them and needed to be exercised. I think it might be a combination of both. And I know New York City in the last, you know, 30 years or whatever has been cleaned up a lot compared to what it used to be, or that's my understanding anyway. But I mean, I think whenever there's low vibe activity like hard drug use, hard alcoholism and rampant sex workers and all that, it just opens the doors for all kinds of dark entities to come in and just wreak havoc on whoever and whatever's around. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. On today's show, 
is a new friend, someone who I've met very recently. His name is Phil Warder, and he is the host of Unexplained Incorporated, a fantastic podcast hosted from the great north. What's up, Phil? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mark, and uh, feel free to refer to me by my host name, Phantom Phil, if you will, as well. That's mostly what I go by, but uh, full name's cool as well. Phantom Phil. Thank you for correcting me. And uh, it's interesting. I'm glad we're here. We initially had our podcast scheduled for around Halloween and some things shifted, but that's fine. I think we, we're on the right track and everything happens for a reason in those terms with like podcast synchronicities and stuff. Cause you know, we're all voluntarily doing this for some, it's a hobby for some, it's a job for some, it's a passion, but there's this sort of through line that I've noticed where synchronistically people will appear. And for example, with Phantom Phil here, I don't quite remember how you appeared on my phone. It was whether, whether it was Instagram, whether it was podcast, somehow unexplained incorporated appeared. And I think I reached out to you and said, Hey, this is my podcast cooperative. Would love to have you a part of it. And then we scheduled this from there. But when did the podcast journey start for you? What, what got you into this and and how did you come up with the name unexplained incorporated? Well, how far would you like me to go back, Mark? Because I, if time is allowed, I can go into my childhood fascination with this stuff and start there if you'd like. Yeah. As much as you will admit. Yeah, please go ahead. Sure. So to trace all the way back, it would go back to me being fascinated with books on ghosts, the paranormal, the unexplained UFOs, and just checking them out from my school library and going all in on those. And then, um, I'm about to date myself here, which I don't mind doing, but, uh, my older brother and I growing up, um, we didn't get cable until like late high school. So we grew up with like six or seven channels on our television. No joke there. And one of the feature shows, this is like late eighties, early nineties was Robert Stack's unsolved mysteries, which is just, OG, you know, so good. And. That show obviously covered just about everything in terms of true crime, lost loves, buried treasure, and of course, the unexplained. And years later, I'm going to fast forward a bit. My brother hooked up with some friends online and they started a podcast called Shouts from the Back Row, which was about movies and popular culture. Anyway, that folded, it collapsed, but then my brother and his one friend spun off from the group. And they started their own podcast called The Trail Went Cold in 2016. It is a true crime podcast, and he has achieved a considerable amount of his success since launching that show. And I had my own kind of failed podcasts, if you will. I started a couple of podcasts over the years, one on my own and one with a friend. They didn't get a lot of traction. We were winging it. They didn't get too far, but I realized I loved the process. And after seeing my brother's success with his show, I decided I was going to start my own. But instead of the true crime realm, I was going to go into more of the paranormal unexplained realm, which is more in my wheelhouse. And while he was drawn more to the true crime stories on Unsolved Mysteries, I was drawn to more of the unexplained stories. 
And now here we are branching out, doing our own thing. And he doesn't have guests on his show. He does solo reads of research and cold cases, but he's been nice enough to come on my show a good, um, two or three times. And I love doing when I'm able to do so crossover shows of true crime and the paranormal, because the true crime fields, you need tangible facts and evidence. Whereas in the paranormal unexplained fields, most of the time you're taking somebody at their word or you're using very loose and sometimes faulty evidence. And the two always collide in very unexpected ways, which I always love. So, I mean, shout out to my bro for helping me with that. Mm. Well, if I could jump right in a tale of two <laughs> brothers, you hit me right where the sweet spot is. I love where true crime and the paranormal combine. I've actually been, uh, digging into my friend recluse's podcast, the farm, uh, through his archives, because he blends those subjects well with the various topics that he discusses and it's fascinating. I, I and I think you, you made a very good description of it where it's like, you know, you take these very hard nosed, rational, give me only the evidence type people. And then you throw them into like a situation where, you know, you're dealing with ghosts, werewolves, incubuses, witches, you know, who knows what it could be a million different things. Uh, it definitely makes for exciting content. So you've done a couple interviews with your brother there. Uh, that's awesome. I was going to say, your show, it seems polished. It seems like it's been put together by someone who's been podcasting for a while. You got seasons, you have uh, intros, you're, you're a great host, and you you treat your guests really uh, well. You, you do them justice for their topics. So I appreciate listening to your show. I've been listening... Uh, a little bit longer since we postponed the um, the interview here. So I've been listening for a few weeks now, and uh, I got to say, recommend it to any one of my listeners. So would you mind sharing a little bit about what you guys talked about with you and your brother? I didn't catch those episodes. Where did the true crime and the paranormal meet in those cases? Did you guys cover anything worth mentioning? I believe if memory serves me correctly, we've done three separate episodes together. Actually, we did a fourth one before I went on break and switched to seasonal format last spring, but that episode was, it was kind of a, a comedic one. So I don't really count that one. <laughs> it was like a review of a lot of things. The first time he appeared was, I believe in June of 2020. In the old format, when I was doing week to week before I switched to seasonal, I had a monthly segment called the case study. And this backs up just what we've been talking about. I would pick a horror movie that was based on true events, which is always a lightning rod of a topic. And I would compare the adaptation of the film to the true events and break down the discrepancies. And guess what? There was always discrepancies. And guess what? The movies always had a much more entertaining story to tell usually than the true events because they're Hollywood movies, right? Like there's going to be embellishment, there's going to be changes. But him and I got together on one topic, on one film that we found really interesting. And I don't believe anybody else has connected the dots like this because no conscious public connection has been made. But him and I got together and we kind of made one. Um, 
I decided to do a case study on the 1990 Patrick Swayze film Ghost. Um, Ghost is really interesting to me because uh, when that movie first came out, it was marketed to be like this sappy romantic comedy slash drama. And that's really not what the film's about. It's a part of the film, but it turns into a very intense supernatural thriller, which I watched in the early stages of the pandemic for the first time in like 25 years or something. And I thought it still held up. Like there's some really good stuff going on in that film. Anyway, we were able to connect that film to a true crime story that got aired on Unsolved Mysteries that took place in inner city Chicago in the late seventies. So Mark, do you remember the overall plot of the film ghost or should I refresh your memory? Please refresh my memory and the audience. I only remember what I've heard comedians joke about when they reference that movie, that Patrick was a sort of phantom in this woman's bedroom. That's all I remember. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty accurate. So him and uh, Demi Moore are like this, you know, high profile couple that lives in Manhattan and he ends up getting killed over a botched mugging one night and there's a whole lot of mystery around his murder and whether or not it was intentional. So his ghost does not cross over to the afterlife. He's still in New York and his reason for being there is to warn his partner and try to get her attention that, hey, he's, his soul is fine, but the people who did this to him need to be brought to justice. And there's this whole unraveling that you find out that actually was a premeditated hit. It wasn't some accidental mugging like it was made out to be. And Swayze's character also works in high finance banking, and it could even be on Wall Street, if I remember correctly. So he pretty much uncovers this whole conspiracy, but because... Nobody can fully hear him or see him. He has to get really creative in terms of getting people's attention in the 3D. So, and he also meets other ghosts in his path who haven't crossed over. So he is so funny because this reflects real life so much. One of the major supporting roles in the film, which I believe also led to an Oscar uh, nomination and a win, was Whoopi Goldberg, who played a psychic medium who was... 100% a complete fraud, but then Swayze as a ghost reaches out to her and realizes that she can actually hear him (laughs) and that she actually does have psychic medium ability. So he has to use her to get to Demi Moore and then unravel the whole, uh, the whole mystery. So that's kind of what the film's about. The true crime case is one involving Teresita, Teresita Bossa, excuse me, a, a Filipino nurse. She was murdered in cold blood um, in northern Chicago in the late 70s. And the cops were completely stumped on the case. And a close friend of hers had a psychic premonition in her dreams that revealed a major clue into arresting the assailants. And there was this whole controversy because there was one detective in the police department who followed this lead because it was from a woman who was a friend of Teresita and they were getting a message essentially in a dream from someone beyond the grave. And of course the police department didn't want to touch it except this one detective and his name escapes me right now because I haven't 
looked into it in a while. And he ended up finding a key piece of evidence that led to a confession of the killer. And my brother and I just made the argument on this show that even though there is no public description of a connection between this and the film, we think maybe unconsciously the screenwriter of Ghost picked details from this case and that inspired him to write the script and get it turned into a feature film, even though nobody has gone public connection there. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That is brilliant. I've heard similar stories before where, you know, certain detectives are, you know, approached by a psychic medium who says that they've received, you know, a message that has to do with a case. And, you know, it's, it's been used in, in certain movies, but that's fascinating. I hadn't watched Patrick Swayze's ghost and, and I definitely never thought I'd, I'd say it's on my list, but it's on my list now. Thanks to you, Phil. <laughs> so yeah. Wow. And that's one example of the many curious sort of cases that unsolved mysteries presented. I was a little, uh, young, but it was on television when I was a kid. And I remember watching that along with like, I think FBI files was another one that I watched. And there's a few others at the, at, you know, four to seven o'clock block. When I got out of school, I would come home and watch these strange shows and look out my window and think, oh my gosh, there's bad guys out there, <laughs> you know, but what did this, you know, interest, how did it affect your, let's say, choice in career, college? I mean, did you go to school? Like this fascination, was it just like a peripheral interest or was it like a guiding interest in your life? I'm going to say it was a little bit of both because it's an interest I let lie dormant for a long time. Little bit about my background and thank you for the compliments earlier about the sound and flow of my show. The reason for that being is that like, I have a background in radio, I have a background in media and I consume a considerable amount of podcasts. So I just, I almost by osmosis know how things should flow and somewhat how they should sound. Um, early two thousands, I went to college for radio and television broadcasting, had a very short-lived career in the radio industry, which I ended up really not liking too much. However, I did host a campus radio show that focused on one of my other passions, heavy metal music for quite some time. And like I said, I think that's where I gained my chops, learn how to produce a show, try to get better with the flow and programming the music and all that. And then years later, after many different life and career transitions, um, I decided I maybe wanted to have a crack at videography and try and turn that as a career. And at this point in time, this is sometime in early 2019, I was working in the cooler of a pork processing plants. Long story how I ended up there. But anyway, I had, my life had taken a bit of a left turn. And while I was making good money, I really wasn't happy with what I was doing. I was trying to plan the next steps out. And because I was fairly isolated and had a lot of time to think and keep myself sane during this strenuous job, um, this is where I came 
to the decision to maybe start a videography hustle on the side and build it up. And then something came into my head one day and said, why don't you team up with some local paranormal investigators and film their investigations? And then I was like, oh, that's, that's something I'm going to hold that thought and go from there. Also at this point in time, um, we can get into this a little bit later on, but I was seeing a rec Reiki practitioner somewhat on a regular basis who also happened to double as a psychic medium and would blend the two practices together. I talked about this with her and between our conversations, we came up with this idea of starting a podcast and that she would contribute some monthly content to me. And throughout all this, um, and for the re remainder of 2019, I was just kind of pre-planning this and how it was going to go. And I had this idea that I was going to go to a local metaphysical shop and I was going to rent out space and I was going to set up like a two camera shoot between host and guests, similar to like what Joe Logan does. And of course, uh, March of 2020 happens and that all completely falls apart and I have to pivot and go into audio only. And that's how the journey kind of started from there. Yeah, that was a, a pivot that was universal. You know, a lot of people had big plans in 2019 that got shook up in 2020. But I think if anything, a podcast uh, plan would have been maybe one of the few plans that could have gone even better than expected in 2022, given what happened. And uh, I, I think podcasts kind of boomed a little bit uh, since then. So yeah, it seems like you were intuitively sensing something there. I, I had a question, but I just, I'm stuck on this thought because we mentioned movies and, and you mentioned heavy metal. There's two movies that I recently watched that are based loosely. One of them I know for sure is based on a true story, true crime. The other one, I don't think so. It might be sort of hinting at a concept that could be true. But the first one, and I'm wondering if you've seen these, In the Mouth of Madness by mm. Carpenter, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. And then the second is Society, which stars Billy Warlock. I don't remember the director, but that's the one that's based on a true story, allegedly. And the guy who it's based on was actually interviewed on Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Mm. His name is Zeph. Daniels, and he talks about being born in a Illuminati family, undergoing all these strange, uh, you know, rituals and rites as a child, and then his family, I guess, judge deems him sort of like unfit to take up the family business, and they send him to a mental facility for like 10, 12 years, and while he's there, I guess he starts writing his autobiography or what we're told is his autobiography. And then that gets turned into a screenplay, which becomes this movie society, which, you know, I had never heard of the movie. I had never seen the movie and I watched it a week ago and I've mentioned it probably on two or three podcasts. So clearly it's had an impact on me. Um, but yeah, any comments or thoughts on that? And, and as a videographer, how this like sort of supernatural can, make its way in into the the actual final product i don't know if you actually went out and and filmed any paranormal um you know investigations 
But I imagine that there's a difference in that type of work than maybe your average, you know, soap opera camera operator or or even a Joe Rogan two cam. You know, Jamie is not dealing with ghosts in the in the Rogan studio. Right, right. So first I'll uh I'll answer the questions about the movies. It's funny you mentioned in the mouth of madness. Like I've seen most of John Carpenter's films and I like most of them. However, that one, for whatever reason, I've only seen bits and pieces of it and I haven't sat through the whole thing, but I'd really like to. It's on my list. So <laughs> it's tough. It it's definitely like it's a little bit of a like a disturbing movie. I don't know, maybe I'm just sensitive because I don't watch a lot of horror movies and that I was I was relieved that it wasn't like a gore movie with like gore and blood and all that. Yeah. But uh but yeah, it was it was a little unsettling, you know, to think like you know, this guy was so taken by this paranoia. I don't want to reveal too much, but uh but yeah, <laughs> I don't mean to take us to a dead end there. If you haven't seen yeah, the movie, yeah. I guess there's not much we could say about it. But did you ever go out and uh, videograph uh, with these paranormal investigators? Was that just sort of like a, a dream that never came true? Or have you done that since? It was on my list. And just before I get to that, um, your society mm, yeah. comment was really neat because I've never heard of the film either. But I think I've heard this individual's story being oh. talked about on another podcast. So it kind of rings a bell, but I'll definitely uh, keep my eye open for that as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'll send you more info on that afterwards. I'll send you a link to his coast to coast interview. Yeah. Strange stuff. I'm fascinated. I, I've said this on the show before, like, oh, and I'm not really a movie guy. And I sort of regret saying that because there really isn't much truth there. I just, that was just sort of like a uh, feeling at that point in my life, but there is so much magic that they lay in some of these movies. Not every movie, but some of these movies, I've gotten the feeling they're like keys. You watch it, it unlocks something. Not for everybody, maybe not everybody has the the corresponding lock, but I think that's what's going on. You know, there's sort of puzzle being pieced together. And different movies in conjunction with one another have like a overall message. I don't know. Does that sound like oh, sensible? I agree with that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally on board with that. And a uh, couple of side notes there. I don't personally watch a ton of horror movies myself, other than the ones I checked out for the podcast in the nearly two years I did this segment. And if it is horror, I prefer the psychological thrillers over just the whole blood and guts type of deal, because I think that does have a negative energetic effect on you. Um, real quick on just the videography aspect of my podcast. So I got real chummy with a local paranormal investigator group who helped me launch the show. I went to their house in, uh, early 2020, January of 2020. And, um, I could send you the info for this later, but this family was featured on the American show, My Paranormal Nightmare. Um, them and their two teenage sons were terrorized by demonic activity uh, many years prior. And that inspired them to become paranormal investigators. And I had them on the show and I had the children on the show, uh, which was a really fascinating interview. And uh, 
I went down to their house for a quick visit and I ended up staying for almost five hours, just brainstorming and swapping stories. And they were showing me some really intense stuff about uh, the residuals of their haunting and all that. But the, they told me who I could trust in terms of investigative teams and who I could avoid. And we up here in Canada were in lockdown restriction mode, like forever. Not as bad as, say, a country like Australia, but it just seemed to drag on and on and on. So I never got this opportunity to take my gear and go out and film an investigation with them, which was on the, in the cards, like forever. And just this past summer, this family up and moved down close to the Michigan border, which is still like a good four hours plus from me. So logistically, it's not going to work. However, I will say this. A lot of the other local teams that are still together, they personally told me to avoid <laughs> for a number of reasons. So I can't really go with these other teams. But recently, a friend of mine connected me with a gentleman out of Toronto who holds seances, like almost like uh, as a touristy thing. And he started following me back on social media very recently. So I think next season in spring of 2023, I'm going to try and tee something up with him and see maybe if I can set up and film one of those and maybe use it for the show. Because my original plan for the show was to go out with investigators and then bring back our findings and do like video reviews of them from the metaphysical store, like once a month or what have you. And that could still be in the cards. It's just, I haven't been able to work and manifest that yet. And, um, to answer your original question about how it differs from regular video shoots, well, there's a lot more hazards and I'm not even just talking about spirits. I'm talking about going into unknown terrain, um, a lack of, uh, these are all, these all have to be done in the middle of the night. So there could be issues with vision and periphery. Um, there could be some old haunted buildings that are practically condemned and they could, you know, have the threat of a gas leak or there could be water damage on floorboards. You could, you know, end up stepping through. Like there's a whole lot more hazards to filming this stuff than you would normal video shoots. And one more thing that is in the works right now, while we were on the subject is I've gotten to know some people local to me who rent out and set up their own gear for filming video podcasts and it can be done remotely as well. So that may or may not be a thing in spring of 2023 when I launched the new season, but we're just going to have to wait and see. That's exciting. Yeah. That sounds like a great concept and yeah, I hope you get, get on with that. That sounds like something I'd be interested in watching and I, I don't blame you for having caution going into buildings. I'm sure you have your eye in your lens, you don't want to be bumping into things, God forbid, falling through floors and whatnot. You don't have to give any personal details away, but is there a, a reason why maybe one paranormal investigation group or, would be better than another or maybe suspicious? Are there any dangers if people are listening and they, they you know, go and buddy-buddy up with some paranormal investigators? I mean, are there things they should look out for or or is it just that some people are you know untruthful and others are are honest about their investigations is that 
is there a danger to some of these groups? Because it sounded like they were pretty, they're giving you some red flags about these other groups. Well, there are definitely some red flags and I've never had an investigation done myself, but I've talked to plenty of investigators on the show, including the ones LRRLC, uh, the family that I just told you about. And I'll share basically what they've shared with me. And from where I sit at a distance, I'd say I'm in agreement with them. Red flag number one, if a paranormal investigation team charges money, run away. This is a non-profit sector and people are doing this for the sake of helping other people. It's not done for the money. And another interesting red flag, and some of this is akin to the rise in popularity of the shows like Ghost Hunters and basically any of these paranormal investigative shows on network TV is automatically diagnosing something that isn't there or misdiagnosing something. And the word I'm about to use is this family affectionately referred it to me as the D word. And that is just assuming that all paranormal activity is demonic, which is not true. If anybody comes in and investigates and right away there, they jump to conclusions of it being a demon. That is also another red flag. And it is another team that likely is not doing their research and is likely to either sensationalize their work or even scaring their potential clients into having like a dependency on them. So they'll keep coming back. And that also may tie in with charging money. So in my discussions with investigators, the good investigators try to limit every single hypothesis and possibility of what is actually going on. And if they can't find any rational explanation, then they say, this is paranormal activity. We don't know what this is. Right. Right. Yeah. I can imagine it, it becomes a little bit tricky when you have, you know, religion involved and people are sort of swayed to, to see everything as you know, demonic, if it's not within a certain perspective, you know, biblically, or even, you know, who knows, we have multitudes of religions on, on this continent and across the world. But yeah, that is fascinating to think there's a group of people who are taking advantage of victims of this paranormal activity, charging them money. I mean, that's a low place to be. I wish them well, you know, taking advantage of people like that. But it is it is commonplace, I'll say. This is Mark speaking. I don't want to, you know, represent your opinions. You might differ here. But I personally find it a little distasteful and, and a red flag when conspiracy researchers do that very same thing. They, you know, interpret anything occult as demonic, everything from Nephilim to elves to, you know... Bump, bumps in the night, like little ghosts is considered demonic to certain people. And to me, that's, that's a, an indication that, yeah, they're not really going back far enough to do the research. And yeah, it, it seems like in the real world, it would only entice a negative entity to maybe who wasn't already present to latch on because they're creating that 
codependency between the investigator and the the victim, maybe even furthering that psychic whatever's going on. I mean, sometimes it's as as simple as, you know, a, a psychic rift that somebody's opened up and it seems like certain investigators can exacerbate those paranormal symptoms rather than mediate them. Yeah, this ties into another red flag I want to discuss because it's very important. If an investigator tries to provoke or fight, you know, challenge an entity to a fight, that is a major red flag because that is just going to reinforce the negative energy it's already bringing and it will likely make the activity worse. I found the real solid grounded investigators will firmly command negative spirits, entities, poltergeists to leave a family alone, but they won't do it. They won't get caught up in a fight with them. So if an investigation team is very confrontational and has an explosive temper, it's just going to enable that negative energy even more if that's what you're experiencing. So that's a really important one to touch on. Mm, yeah. No, and and that to me seems like it would be the first thing an investigation team would explain to this person who's experiencing whatever's going on is like, hey, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your mental life? How are you feeling on a day-to-day -day basis emotionally? Because those are all factors in this story, you know, yeah. very important. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not this type of skeptic who chalks everything up to imagination. I mean, that's sort of silly, but there is an aspect of the placebo effect where people can start to create something and then it that every time they have that reaction to it, whatever it is, it reinforces it. And then you have this knucklehead dog, the bounty hunter type who comes in. He's like, I'm going to beat up your ghosts. And he's like, just, you know, he's just, just falling right into the format. He's not breaking the, the format. He's he's exacerbating it. I mean, yeah, that's that's tough stuff. I think television shows. They've picked up characters like that in order to make this whole field seem nonsensical and silly and, and, and the, the likes of hucksters are the only people in there. I'm going to lay in on a little, uh, well, it's not really a secret because it's out in the open, but it's uh, a common denominator between the investigators I've interviewed over the last two and a half years. Legit nonprofit paranormal investigators pretty much all universally despise the ghost hunting shows we see on network television. And just to add to that, you have to remember, Mark, network television, cable television, even like shows that are on streaming services on YouTube or YouTube, they are selling ads. And how do you sell ads? You get people to watch. And how are people going to watch? They're going to want engaging content. A legit paranormal investigation is not engaging content. And like I've said, I still have yet to go on one, but I've been told repeatedly that it can be quite boring and quite tedious. And when you do find a sighting or a sound, it's incredibly exhilarating because it's so rare. These TV shows... They're pieced together to fit in a 60 minute frame with ads. So they're going to try and scare the shit out of you as much as they possibly can. So just remember, I don't want to say those teams on television aren't finding activity. I believe they do, but the volume of activity 
they find, I think, is greatly exaggerated. Right, right. It's like the nature documentaries. They give you this lie that, oh, yeah, that we waited in a tree stand for eight months to to get five minutes of this snow leopard. And it's like, no, you didn't. You went to the zoo. You put the camera yeah. angle so that you couldn't see the zoo walls and you got a good shot of the leopard walking by the fake, fo you know, foliage, you know, like that. The, this is the kind of camera tricks that, that go on in at least from what I've seen in the nature documentaries. But yeah, the the paranormal shows I've watched tend to be a little disappointing like that where they're jostling you. You know, yeah. they're like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then you get to the like last 10 seconds of the video and it's like, eh, well, whatever. <laughs> One story I'd like to share that kind of related Please, on yeah. that is um, through my uh, my now good friend, Jason Hewlett, who is on, a, who is a paranormal investigator. I think he's done my show now a good four or five times. Yeah, I think Great he's guy. been on, he's, I've, I've, I think I've booked him on a show before. Well. I first heard him on tinfoil hat, so yeah. that's probably what it was. So <laughs> yeah. you probably have crossed paths with him that way, right? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, he's a great guy, but uh, he helped me get Ralph Searchy onto my 100th episode this past February. And uh, I'll briefly elaborate the story of Ralph Searchy in case yourself or anybody doesn't know. Um one of the case studies I did for the podcast was a movie called Deliver Us From Evil, which I had never heard of. And Eric Bana is the leading man who plays Ralph Searchy. And Ralph was a detective in the Bronx for quite some time, like the rough part of the Bronx. And he essentially, I'm leaving a lot out here for time, but he essentially became an exorcist on the side and was constantly going to house calls and clearing out like demons and possessions. And uh, Ralph is retired and living in Florida now. And when he was on my show, the dude is still got that New York toughness in him. He's tough as nails. He's a nice guy, but he's very tense. And I asked him about a project he did after Deliver Us From Evil. I cannot remember the name of the TV show off the top of my head or what network it was on. But he was asked to become a part of one of these types of reality shows that dealt with possessions through one of the major cable networks. Um, the plug got pulled on it after one season, but he basically backed out of the show very early on. And he was supposed to be one of the main people on the show because he had a vision. The producers had another vision and the New Yorker and him came out and said, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not compromising my vision for anybody. And it was like, see you later. You can go back, you know, cheap plug time. You could go back to Unexplained 100 from February of uh, 2022 and listen to him check out the full story because I've forgotten some of the details. But that's just one example. Ralph, a tried and true respected individual in this field, and the producers of said network were saying, no, no, we got to do it this way. And Ralph says, oh, you do it my way or I'm out of here. And then that's essentially what happens. Mm. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in the description for people to check out after this episode. So episode 100, and congrats, 100 is a big deal. Thank uh, you. And uh, yeah, wow. Do you think, I mean, you spoke with him, I'm sure you focused on his story, but what do you think of that situation? A detective in the Bronx, like what do you think about his life led him to do that? And And do you think there's 
there was a certain amount of like negative entities at that time in New York City. I mean, are they still there? <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, from what I understand, Ralph is a very devout Catholic and he was mentored and heavily inspired by Father Malachi Martin, who um, I've also heard several, several interviews with on Coast to Coast. Very fascinating. He passed away quite a few years ago, but uh, there are some very long form interviews he did with Arbel about possession and the light, demonic activity and those types of things. And Ralph also, because you'll appreciate this because like you're in Connecticut, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he also received some temporary mentorship from Ed Warren of oh, yeah. Ed and Lorraine Warren. So Ed Warren and Malachi Martin, plus his faith had a very profound influence on him and how he wanted to, um, go to this aspect of his, um, his calling. And I have a bit of a theory on this as well. And unfortunately I didn't get enough time with Ralph to get into this, but he, in his ward at the Bronx, he was dealing with people on a lot of hard drugs. And you'll probably agree with me on this is that using those hard drugs constantly, I think will invite negative entities into your being and may lead to oppression and possession. So. It's debatable as to whether how many of these people were just really messed up on hard drugs or how many of them actually had demonic presence or entities taking over them and needed to be exercised. I think it might be a combination of both. And I know New York City in the last, you know, 30 years or whatever has been cleaned up a lot compared to what it used to be, or that's my understanding anyway. But I mean... I think whenever there's low vibe activity, like hard drug use, hard alcoholism and rampant sex workers and all that, it just opens the doors for all kinds of dark entities to come in and just wreak havoc on whoever and whatever's around. So I think it was a mix of all those things that got Ralph on the path he decided to go down and it caused rifts like within the police department and with his in his own family like it wasn't an easy path for him to take yeah it's interesting you know you look at the history of new york city and all of the occult activity that has gone on there i've had on the past i think episode 130 something brian cote noir who is you know working at the one of the world's i think either said it was the biggest or the oldest best known they have some kind of you know superlative to describe this bookstore it was the number one metaphysical bookstore in new york city and this was in the 70s and he's telling me about you know witches that were battling each other you know covens of witches that you know and and you look at these sort of art movements that were going on in the uh, time period in new york city and they were all practicing the occult, you know, they were fascinated with that kind of stuff. And, you know, people think like, oh, where, where are these witches and wizards? And it's like, well, they're the artists, they're, you know, they're the thinkers, the, the creators, like there's a sort of dance that they do with that unknown. And that's been described as the muse, right? But there's a, there's a, a negative side of that too, because a lot of those creative types, as we discussed, 
as you just mentioned, you know, there's a lot of hard drugs, alcoholism, you know, those sorts of energies going on too. And, and yeah, there's an argument to be made that even New York City itself, the architecture is channeling that energy down into it. So I don't know. It, I definitely want to review your interview with, with this gentleman. And I think I've heard that story before, but you know, considering what we just talked about, how, you know, sort of one of the red flags is, oh, everything's a demon, you know, do you think that there's an element of that where maybe this detective, because of the circumstances he was in, started to get pulled into it to the point where everything became a demon to him, even though maybe it was just a heroin addiction and a broken home? It's highly possible. Um, He's the type of guy who swears that his word is the truth, and I have no reason not to believe him. And I wanted to touch on real quick of what you said about the occult activity in New York City and all that is, I think when it comes to people like witches, warlocks, Satanists, and all that stuff, and I'm not even saying all of those people are on the dark side, because like some of them are clearly not, but... I think there's all kinds of people like that that are hiding in plain sight and people just refuse to open their eyes to it. Accept that and accept that, hey, there are people like this in our world. And you want to talk about strange activity in New York City. Let's just take an examination of David Berkowitz and the Son of Sam murders because that was all tied to uh, a dark satanic cult. And I believe even had a feature on it on Unsolved Mysteries way back in the day. So it all ties together. And I want to say something about New York City. I've only been there one time. I was, it was around my 11th birthday on a family vacation and we spent just over a week there. And New York City, like the architecture and the structure just amazes me because it just shouldn't function. Like there is so much activity in such a tiny piece of geography like it should just be complete chaos all the time. And yet as chaotic as the energy gets, it all synchronizes and works. And I'm sure I also had your good friend, um, Michael Wan on my podcast once, and he does so much amazing research on the Northeast and Susquehanna and all that. And I don't exactly remember where Manhattan and New York city connects to all of that, but I'm sure it's all connected into his work as well. Right. Mm, yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting point you just made because, yeah, Mike has covered a lot within the realm of Pennsylvania and, and the Susquehanna River goes up to Cooperstown, New York, which is fairly west of New York City. I mean, most people probably who live in New York City haven't been to Cooperstown unless they're yeah. baseball I've, fans. I've been there once and I do remember it being pretty far away mm. from the big city. So Yeah, but I will say on your point, when I, you know, a couple of years ago got interested in Mike's work, I said, you know, I want to try to draw some connections to where I'm from, right? Based, you know, on this and and he's inspired that to a very large degree. Only one man can can research so much, right? So I think I'll have more to say on that in the coming years. But from what I've learned so far, the Hudson River is certainly key in that equation, right? For people who aren't geography buffs like me and Phantom Phil here, the Hudson River 
is the river that the Manhattan sort of juts out of, and it separates, you know, the rest of the United States from what is kind of like the New England portion, right? Because Manhattan is kind of like the tip, the end of New England, and then there's Long Island, which is where the Bronx and Brooklyn are, and that's sort of west of Manhattan, and then on the other side of the Hudson River is New Jersey and New York State. But certainly, energetically speaking, the river plays a role, but then also the geography. Peter Shampoo, someone who we've had on the show a bunch of times, Mike actually introduced me to his work. He describes Manhattan as sort of like a phallic symbol mm-hmm. with, with that Manhattan island being the phallus entering the sort of womb that is the Hudson River, Atlantic Ocean, Long Island Sound, and the you know land that's all surrounding it. It's it's those are the places where civilizations tend to thrive. And and I you know I think Mike's research would probably add to the you know support the theory that maybe people planned it this way. Like they choose cities like New York City because of their location to become what it becomes. But that I mean how how far into the future can can they actually you know see right i mean it is like clockwork the way new york city works i mean it's it's a chaotic clock but it's it's clockwork <laughs> one subject i'd like to explore more on my show sometime in the future and like i said i had uh michael on in early 2021 but doing more things about you know symbols hidden in architecture and why cities are designed the way that they are. And there's the whole, you know, Tartaria theory we could go into and all that stuff. Cause it's still to me, an unexplained mystery. And I think a lot of these big cities, especially where they are, they're all near water. Like even in my country, we got Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver being the biggest ones. And I think there's a lot more going on to that than just that, oh, these are port towns or port cities used for trade. And this is where most of the commerce was. I just, I think there's a lot more going on underneath that, you know? No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that is the, the full explanation, but there's a metaphysical explanation as well. Right. I think, I think that's part of the fun in, in doing this research is we're, we're integrating a lot of the aspects that researchers take to the paranormal and we're applying them to things that maybe you wouldn't traditionally have that perspective in like geography or architecture right like that's what fascinated me about mike's work so much to begin with was like how he blended the history with this sort of paranormal strange alternative you know but uh, yeah mike has definitely made an impact on the two of us i haven't listened to your interview with him but he's sort of a, a shaman in his own right he's done a couple different sittings with ayahuasca why don't we segue into your experience with shamanism because the my first impression of shamanism you know outside of like some anthropology books i found in the library was The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I always recommend this book to people who are interested in shamanism. It's sort of like, you know, one of the classics, anthropological works on shamanism. 
But what's your take? And how did you initially like get introduced to it? How did you, you know, make the decision that you would undergo this training? I have to flash back almost a decade. In September 2013, I got a Reiki session for the very first time, and it literally changed my life. Um, I don't remember how I got called to do that, um, but I was being strongly pulled to it. I found a local practitioner, and I'll just say this because we were talking about it earlier. Energetically, it felt like I'd had an exorcism, and like I was a brand new person. So much negativity from me just disappeared, and I was headed into a lot of uh, personal turmoil at that point in time. I'll just leave it at that for now. And I felt like going through that was preparing me for the tough road ahead for myself. Another neat thing happened around this time is that I think because my channel was very clear, I started to have a lot of psychic premonitions in my dreams to the point where like, it was like scaring me <laughs> and I didn't know what was happening, but it was guiding me towards a path. I was ready to go down. So through all this over the next several years, um, I would discover a lot of what we would call the metaphysical, the occult, and even pieces of the new age movements. And a lot of it started with me with reading books by people like Wayne Dyer. And they had a very profound effect on me because I was still going through some tough things personally, but then I started to learn these concepts about personal empowerment, manifestation, and even little sprinklings of the law of attraction. Um, I have an episode of the show coming up shortly where I get a little bit deeper into my relationship with that, but I'll just say this here too. I've never, ever, ever seen the movie or read the book on the secret. Cause whenever I bring aspect up, people like, oh, do you mean like the secret? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never read it, <laughs> you know? So those things that's started. A, that, that's a, yeah. that's a, a point for you. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing something right then is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good then. So anyway, these things all started to integrate into my life. So I'm going to talk briefly about the downside of it. And I've talked about this on Unexplained several times. And even on the upcoming remaining shows in my season, I get into false light and false teachings. And problem is when you follow down that road, you can follow it for the wrong reasons, or you can start to become entitled so to speak. And long story short, I mapped out this vision of how I wanted my life to look in a certain way, in a certain period of time. And it didn't happen. And after that, I kind of fell off the rails <laughs> and was living in a very egoic mindset. And then guess what? Certain things in my life just weren't working out anymore. And I was being stuck in this same loop over and over again. And this is one major reason, like earlier on, I mentioned, I ended up working in a pork processing facility because a lot of things bottomed out. And it was during that time, I read a book and this book, I didn't go to seek it. It seeked me. And part of the reason is because the cover was so nicely done and I found it, I think in the spiritual section of a local bookstore chain I was in at the time. And this is spring of 2019. And the book is written by Jeffrey D. Nixa. 
And man, I always mess up the title of this. I might have to send it to you later, but it's along the lines of following the heart-centered path. And it's a modern field guide to shamanism. This book really called to me because at the time in my own spiritual growth, I felt like I'd hit a brick wall. And I thought, oh, maybe this is worth a try. And I love the book so much that, and this is even mentioned in the book, it inspired me to find out local practitioners of shamanic healing. Cause I'm like, there's gotta be some here. I'm in the most urban, uh, geographical region of Canada. There's gotta be someone doing this. And Jeff Nixa is in the Midwestern U S I believe he's in Indiana and refers to himself as an urban shaman, but even before the pandemic happened, he's a really difficult man to get a hold of. And I don't even know if he has an online presence anymore outside of his book. So I decided to look local. I was in need of some healing. I went and found someone and she did very good work on me in a couple of sessions. And between that and a couple of other synchronicities that included me getting aura photography done at a local metaphysical store. More and more people were starting to tell me, uh, you can do this, or you can do something like this because your org field is the energy of a healer. And at that point in time, I was like, get out of here. <laughs> I'm doing, you know, the videography stuff. I got other things in mind. I don't know if that's me. And then once again, March of 2020, we go through all that craziness. And then I end up starting the show. And I ran it once a week with the odd bonus episode until April of 2022, when I went on a break and then switched to the seasonal format and incorporated more spirituality into the show as well. But it was at some point in the summer of 2020, my practitioner, shamanic practitioner, shut down her business and just said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And we had a very long chat about everything. And she, she gave me all the encouragement in the world to pursue this. And I thought, okay, she's closing up shop. I just got to find another place to train. And so this is interesting. You mentioned Michael Harner earlier, him and Sandra Ingerman, the two anthropologists, counselors, and authors. Those two are almost single-handedly responsible for bringing core shamanism to the Western world or to North America at the very least through their wit written work and their experiences. Michael Harner created the course on core shamanism from his findings and he's passed that lineage down like almost three to four decades now, if not more, I could be mistaken on that. And one of those teachers is a gentleman out of Ottawa, Ontario, our nation's capital named Glenn Campbell. And before the pandemic, Glenn Campbell would take a trip. He would book a hotel in downtown Toronto a couple of times a year, and he would basically do the whole core shamanism course in an entire weekend. And he booked out a conference room for it. And my first practitioner, this is where she got her certification and learned everything, even though she would eventually shut down and get out of it. And a side note on that, I also think she kind of just went into it as a weekend hobby 
and then got in deep and said, eh, I don't know if this is for me. Maybe didn't do it for the right reasons, but she was still very good. I have nothing bad to say about her. I just think she got in a little over her head because this work can get very intense. So I decided, okay, I had correspondences through email with Glenn Campbell. He was going to stay in Ottawa, which is like a good six to seven hour drive for me. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to commute all the way up there for these courses. And he wasn't even offering them in person anyway, because of the pandemic. So I was like, there's gotta be someone more local to me offering these trainings. So I found a couple of people, um, they were doing them in person and virtually price was a little high, but then I was like, okay, I got to look around a little, a little bit more. And this is late 2020. And I find a practitioner that's literally a 15 minute drive from where I live. And I was just like, how did I not know this was here? And it's a, uh, it's a retired music teacher who runs all kinds of courses in her healing practice out of her basement. And fast forward to spring of 2021, that's when I finally got serious about doing this. And it's funny, she was still running these courses in lockdown with small groups when, you know, technically she wasn't supposed to, but she had certain things in place and everything went off without a hitch and everything just took off from there. And I'm in an interesting spot where I have one foot left in my nine to five responsibilities, my family responsibilities, and my other foot in the spiritual realm, wanting to eventually open up my practice. And I'm just finding ways to currently do that. And it's, uh, it's timely, it's difficult, but one day it's going to happen. Mm. Yeah. You express the difficulty of this work and how it can be taxing. Do you have any moments since you've been modality. part of this modality? What were some of the challenges that you faced? I mean, you know, after you, you leave the auspices of your teacher, you're sort of out in the world with this knowledge. What was, what were some of the first hurdles you faced? Some of my first hurdles, I completed the courses in December, 2021. So some of the hurdles I've had this year kind of sum up to this. Number one, people just don't know about it. Even people in a spiritual community or, or who consider themselves spiritual are really in the dark about this stuff. Um, one of my plans of action, which I've had to pivot from because it didn't really work out in my favor was to go to various yoga studios and other centers and do workshops on this thing. And I got a couple under my belt. The attendance was very low. And part of the reason being was this one, I wasn't an established name. And number two, people just don't know about it. They don't know what they're getting into. And I did all this promo material, made videos trying to explain it. And it's still, and some people just had scheduling conflicts, which is cool because I got to do this stuff on the weekends. But so many people, this is one thing in my presentation for the workshops I went over is that when they hear shaman, they just think it's someone dealing ayahuasca automatically. And that's totally not the case. You know, that can be a part of it in the right setting, especially if you're at a retreat in South America, but to do shamanic journeying and experience shamanic healing, you do not need psychedelics whatsoever. In right. fact, blending the two at the same time may not be a great idea <laughs> because the psychedelics are going to do their own thing. 
and it may, you know, get your wires crossed and take you to who knows where. Mm, yeah. No, I, I'm really glad you made that point because this, you know, ADD culture that we're in with Instagram and TikTok, you know, that's the impression that people get. And even, you know, big podcasts like Joe Rogan, when they talk about that subject, it's within the realms of psychedelics. It's not within the realms yep. of history or mythology or folklore. I mean, when I first heard the concept shamanism, I was interested in martial arts. I was interested in the concept that, you know, the human mind, the human body, the human soul as we're given has been constrained by our culture, by our religions, by our society norms, right? So when I was really young as a martial artist, my biggest fascination was like, how can I break these limits? Like, what what can I do that, you know, I've been told I can't, right? So things like shamanism to me were, you know, and I'm, I'm an armchair shamanist, like a shaman. Like I don't, I'm not going to even, I shouldn't even say shaman. I'm just an armchair <laughs> researcher in shamanism. And I know quite a bit, but I, I wouldn't, I would never like, you know, take someone aside and be like, oh, I could do this for you. You know, like that's not who I am. Right. I haven't been certified for that, but it is something that is extremely human. It's something that hits the core of us. And what people don't realize is that ayahuasca, yeah, that's going on in very specific part of the world. Shamanism has existed throughout all cultures, throughout all of human history, you know, from the aboriginals in, in Australia who, you know, basically had no contact with the rest of the world, even to some groups that still have no contact with the rest of the world. I mean, there are some island or some Amazonian tribes that we know have shamanistic aspects to their culture and they, they don't inter interact with, you know, anybody. So, you know, it's something that is expressedly human. One of the biggest concepts for me that helped me grow as an individual was this concept of the rite of passage, which I think our culture just doesn't have enough of. You know, I think sports for a certain time, maybe 50 or 100 years ago, served that purpose for people. Maybe the military served that purpose for some people. But I think a big reason why we have this like discrepancy in the generations of one generation says, oh, they're a bunch of, you know, sissies who only use their phone and they can't, you know, I think that has more to do with the fact that we don't have like a common rite of passage than oh, one generation's better than any other. I mean, what are your thoughts on that as a, a, a you know, practiced shaman, someone who's been trained to some degree? Yeah, I agree with that. And um, some of the other rites of passage, even going to religion, like the bar mitzvahs and the uh, communions, christening, stuff like that. But uh, shamanism, to me, bridges the physical and the non-physical together because you journey into the non-physical to gain wisdom to apply into the physical. And I think there's so much conditioning and programming, especially on us in the West, that this stuff is scary. Or, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation, it some may consider it demonic because they don't understand it. You know what I mean? And that's the blanket term they want to use. 
many of these tribes worldwide have really tough, rigorous, intense initiations that I've read about, and they are rites of passage. And one thing I learned early on in my training was that people like me and others who live in the city and don't belong to these tribes, we technically should refer to ourselves as shamanic practitioners, whereas an actual shaman comes from, say, possibly a millennia of lineage from their direct bloodline and their direct family. So for us to call ourselves a shaman, eh, not quite accurate, not the worst thing in the world, but just saying that you're a practitioner of shamanic healing, that's, that's the truth right there, you know? Right. Well, and it's, it's utterly blasphemous when someone at like a music festival wearing a headdress calls himself a shaman because they have a, a, satchel, a satchel full of molly, you know? I mean, that's, or, um, that's the height of it, I, I would say. Another good uh, example would be the QAnon shaman from January 6th. That's another one well, I just shake my head at. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm sure like the media gave a really distasteful impression of him. But from what I heard, I mean, I've seen him interviewed once or twice. He seems genuinely interested in shamanism, which is nice. I don't know if he's hmm. like, you know, qualified by any means, but he does seem to have a genuine interest in shamanism. I mean... I personally would never wear something like that, but, uh, <laughs> but it definitely, it didn't, it didn't strike me as like he was mocking, uh, any indigenous concepts. I've heard a lot of interesting things about him, but to get a little, uh, conspiratorial on you, which I'm Hit sure me. you do not mind. <laughs> oh, go for it. I almost think mainstream adopted that name on purpose. Number one, not just to discredit him but to discredit shamanism in the eyes of uh, right. many of the normies out there, they'll hear the word shaman. And they'll be like, oh, it's that jerk off from January 6th. I don't want anything to do with that stuff. You know what I mean? I think that's part of the agenda. Lumping it all in. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And I think they, you know, the powers that be are threatened by psychedelics because oh, yeah. certain substance, su substances, uh, I've been told, you know, Ibogaine and ayahuasca have a very strong potential to heal people from these addictions that it seems like the powers that be are totally in support of. If you look at, you know, what they're allowing coming into this country and how they mitigate these problems with the homeless and the people who are suffering and on the fringes, they're only making it worse. They're not, you know, actually contributing to betterment of these people's lives. If anything, they're using them as a sort of farm, a drug addict farm. And anything that risks that cash cow is going to be stomped out by that capitalist mentality, if it even is just purely capitalist. And it's really interesting. Um, I think the powers that be are smartening up to the powers of these psychedelics because I've been hearing and reading a lot of rumblings as to how um, certain members of Big Pharma and Big Tech are trying to get their hands in on trying to legalize and monetize strains of magic mushrooms. And of course, as soon as I hear this, I'm like, okay, yeah, they, you know, there's a big part of me that says they probably should be legalized. However, if some of these people are getting their hands into it, uh, it's probably not going to be a good thing. Mm, right. Now, I do appreciate what you said about the, the term shaman, but I'll, I'll disagree in the sense that the word shaman was possibly wrongfully applied to the people of North America. You know, they 
in a lot of sense preferred the term medicine man and or, or you know they had their own language to to describe these words are probably more colorful than we can put together with the english language but i will say you know it's only because of the empires roman catholic you know all these empires that uh stif- you know s- snuffed out the flame of paganism that dirty word i think if those religions were allowed to exist they would appear like maybe more systematic versions of what we consider shamanism and i only say that because you know the north american the people here in north america and south america like they didn't have a chance to to function the way those cultures did right because you know they were here doing their own thing and then all of a sudden you know some force washes over them and you know 100 years later we're like looking back through the rubble like oh these people were shamans and they're like you know from their ghettos like yeah dude we know a lot of stuff we're not telling you any of it because we're trying to keep we're trying to preserve it (laughs) you know yeah i mean it's it's a it's a touchy subject for sure I'm, i'm not afraid to to wade into it because personally i have you know spoken to native americans i have a person in my family who's Native American, not by blood, but through my father's, you know, one of my father's best friends that he grew up with. He's my sister's godfather, right? So, you know, I've had conversations throughout my whole life in this area, and it seems to me like, you know, there's a there's a misconception about Native Americans maybe wanting people to not talk about them in a certain way where in my experience they've been very cool and like yeah call us indians like we don't like the word native american what the hell's america like this isn't america we call it turtle island you know like this kind of it's very like salt of the earth you know grounded it's not like you know this european sort of mentality of like oh you have to be polite and a gentleman you know like i think they're very like no, we just want respect. We don't want, <laughs> we don't care if you call yourself shamans or not. <laughs> yeah, this is very timely that you bring this up. Um, before this recording, the most current episode I released was with a woman out of Colorado who calls herself the rock and roll shaman, which I think is such a badass name. And I asked her right off the bat, I'm like, have you ever been dinged for being, you know, termed culturally inappropriate or misappropriation? And she says, nope, not a single time. And the reason I bring that up is because my own teacher and a couple of my pupils have run into this from very minute sects of native Canadians. So like, I almost think it's like, it almost depends on who you ask. You'll get, you know, like the salt of the earth response, like you said, and you may get the odd ones who ruffle feathers, but I mean, we're just collectively, we walk on eggshells so much Mm. in this crazy <laughs> maligned world we live in but here's a little uh, curveball to throw you if i remember this correctly the term shaman is actually siberian right it was from a tribe in northern siberia so it got nothing to do with native canadians native americans australian aboriginals it comes from somewhere you would never think it would it would come from and i'll just end on this to me Healing is healing. And if your intention is good, that's all that should matter. But 
unfortunately, in the climate we're in, there are going to be some people who are going to ruffle some feathers, and I, I've witnessed it from a distance. So, yeah, no, and uh, I think you're a very agreeable person. I don't think anyone would perceive you as ruffling feathers. And yeah, no, I, I think we're totally on the right page here with this. And it's about time people grow up and and get past those sort of boundaries. But different conversation for a different day. You you mentioned you mentioned something earlier that I think connects in a very strange way to this, you know, First Nations, North American culture of people that were wiped out or and displaced for the most part. We're we're seeing this, you know, fervor, this passion on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube for the Tartaria subject. And I got interested in it because I you know, have always, like I said, been interested in, you know, Native American cultures, what's going on, you know, politics, why the government's oppressing us and this stuff. So to hear all this, I'm like, well, where did the natives fit into that story? You know, if there's a, you know, ancient civilization called Tartaria, was it theirs? And that's why we decimated them. You know, that was my first instinct. And the more I've waded into it, it doesn't seem to be anything more than propaganda, but that's just my opinion. What do you think about Tartaria? I'm leaning towards what you just said there about it being propaganda. And I think about it the same way. I think about theories that are hotly debated like flat earth. Uh, David Weiss has been on my podcast and, uh, it was an interesting show. I tried to get him to talk about other things other than his usual flat earth debates. And I think it made for a decent interview. And even along, there's a whole rabbit hole of theories you could go down to about Jesus never existed, mm. which I personally don't want to believe, but I find it interesting. So I put Tataria in with those subjects where I don't take a full lot of stock into them, but I'll always listen because who knows, you never know if something will come out that will change your mind and change your perception, if that makes any sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And I've started to use the term old world because as I've looked into this subject, like there are plenty of fascinating real things that you can find that maybe the mainstream history has erased or forgotten or just doesn't want people to talk about. And that is like the, the real fire that burns the Tartaria topic I think for people is because everybody has that instinct of like we're not being given the full true story and they all want to be a part of piecing it together I want to be a part of it you want to be a part of it in some way and I think all of our lives lead us to different portions of that puzzle but it's all the same puzzle this reality that we're in is sort of puzzling Maybe that's because we're, we're in a sort of collective amnesia. Maybe that's because our culture is very young and we just haven't sort of figured it all out yet. Some people say, you know, it's the opposite, that we're very old and, and we just forgot all of it. Again, the collective amnesia. What do you think about that? I mean, because the Atlantean topic and all that, I mean, that kind of hangs, that drifts in the background. It's not quite the Tartaria topic. That's sort of surplanted what used to be Atlantis and Lemuria, but it's there, you know, it's in the zeitgeist. What are your thoughts on that? 
I love that you brought up amnesia because one of the very first teachings I received in my shamanic courses was we did a whole bit on purpose because that's such a major word, especially in the spiritual community. And it was like, what is your purpose? And my teacher lays it out roughly like this, your purpose of incarnating on this earth is to remember who you are. And then that goes further back. Well, who are we? And the answer she gives, which I pretty much agree with is we are co-creator God beings that design our own lives and our own reality around us. And when you start digging into, well, who are we? Were we these originally much more highly spiritual beings from Atlantis and Lumeria that could connect telepathically or could move objects with our minds and had our third eye open all the time? And was there an agenda or a cataclysm or both to wipe all of that out so we could be enslaved by what many would be what would call the dark controllers or the dark masters who run the construct we live in now? It's yeah, like it, it could go so deep if you want it to. Yeah, no, I, I think that's where the average person, you know, checks out. You can't start with, oh, the controllers, they're doing, you know, like the average person hears that and they're like, the world's not being controlled, you know? Like, I think a lot of the danger is there's a sort of banality to the evil that goes on where people just couldn't wrap their head around it because it doesn't, it seems too perfect to be true kind of thing or or maybe it's like hidden in plain sight to some degree where people have become comfortable with this oppression and i think that kind of stems to the root of why you know we can call it amnesia but it, it seems more like an ignorance it's why the name of my show is titled the way it is because when i try to bring a lot of this type of discussion up amongst family close friends and and or beyond it's usually met with this sort of like suspicion in me you know for like what well, why are you asking these questions rather than like oh yeah that is an interesting question you know like it's it seems like it's it, you're uh, you're risking social suicide by questioning some of these things and i'm well past that <laughs> Good place to be, really. It's more uh, liberating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing I want to touch on there, um, maybe you could help me with some specific examples here, but what I find really fascinating with the law of the collective is that their ability to embrace certain topics that may be considered fringe and completely banish other ones. It's like, you can talk about A, but you're stupid or you're insane if you talk about B. Mm. Well, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that exists like all over the place. Oh, yeah. It's happening with aliens right now where aliens yeah. are, are totally accepted, whereas maybe 10 years ago, aliens were right there with Bigfoot. Like, why are you, why are you talking about that? That's silly. Like, you know, the average person who hasn't spent enough time looking at it, they don't you know, they don't think of anything more than, oh, that's part of science fiction movies. That's a part of tele silly television shows, uh, you know, magic tricks. I think, I think there's, yeah, definitely. I think that would be cognitive dissonance. Yeah. One thing I'd like to share related, this just popped into my head is that, uh, 
somebody at my day job at my work, they were talking to me about my show. They show interest here and there. Um, it's amazing how many people don't, which is just in, let, not to get off on a side rant, but it's insane to me the amount of people in the year 2022 still don't understand podcasts or even a thing and are a great way to learn. Mm, yeah, no, it's it's weird going to Thanksgiving and, and people are like, so how's your podcast going? I'm like, I don't know, you should listen to it. <laughs> but a uh, little, little sidebar there, but um, I think it was one of my bosses was talking to me. He told me he was all in on cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and Ogopogo. It's a Canadian one, which I've talked about on the show quite a bit. But if you ever suggest to him that there is controlled manipulations through the mainstream media and the narratives it's trying to spin, he will freak out. He'll be like, absolutely not. There's no way that's going on. And I'm like, dude, like what's a, like I said before, you're into A, but you're not into B. I'm not following. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting. I I think that's that's something we we just touched on in a conversation I had with Midnight Mike, where he talked about a certain researcher who is very mainstream, but he's a proponent of the Bigfoot. He's probably the only professor of a university who you know advocates that Bigfoot's real, but he's not willing to look at anything about maybe Bigfoot being interdimensional. Bigfoot having a weird, you know, correspondence with UFO encounters, Bigfoot leaving no trace behind. Maybe people suggest it's like an astral being. I mean, there's a a lot that we can go into on that like strange Bigfoot thing, but that's another example. I mean, one other is, you know, in this conspiracy podcast realm, there are some people who are very focused on things maybe like your brother is with true crime right like like they have a very like material you know journalistic sort of approach to these subjects and they don't they're not willing to look at like oh maybe there's like a secret society or there's an occult aspect to it like anything that that goes outside of the line of like oh well it's just corrupt bad people and who's the you know like it's it I don't ever think it's one or the other. I think it's a blending of all of it. You know, I don't know. Maybe that sounds sort of lazy to someone who's like an expert in one thing, but I think there's a lot of sense to finding a sort of through line that includes it all. Yeah. And connectivity is such a major theme on Unexplained Incorporated because I've gone, I've interwoven paranormal, supernatural, spirituality, and even bits of conspiracy, because the digger I deep into all of these, I'm like, all connected, man. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no separation from any of these. And I also have another theory on this cognitive dissonance is that, uh, and I've been going through some of this in my own personal, life the last few months is doing shadow work and trying to identify and clear out, not necessarily eliminate the shadow aspects of yourself, but to put them in balance with you know, the side, the light side that you present to other people and how you interact with society. Cause they're both going to be there. You just got to try and put them in balance and make sure one doesn't totally take over the other. I think when people react so negatively to some of this information is that they are lacking in the shadow work and they just don't seem to want to believe that there are people on this earth, especially those running the show that they could do these horrible things or that they themselves 
have that same capability of doing some of these horrible things. And this is their way of just ignoring their own shadow in relation to the whole thing. That's just a theory I carry around as well. Mm. There's a part of that that I think is systematic, you know, where, you know, who knows, maybe cult, secret societies, I'm not naming names here, but I think there's a group of people that have figured out how to manipulate a person's shadow self and that alters their relationship with the rest of humanity, right? Where maybe because they feel some sort of psychological discrepancy there between them and the rest of humanity because of something they're told, like they don't reconcile their shadow self, their dark passenger they see it as like a sort of like a like a natural thing like a like like they're a predator and we're prey right whereas mm-hmm. the human instinct is like we have this yin and yang that needs to be balanced it's not so much that we're one or the other it's that there's a balance that needs to take place and i think we've let the predators the people with the imbalance towards the negative run the ship so to speak yeah i agree with that and there's um there's a bit of a problem i've encountered in spiritual healing and the spiritual community up close and from afar and that's um there are people who do this work who have not even come close to healing their shadow selves and i think in terms of i guess compensation they get trained in one modality after another, after another, and they almost overextend themselves trying to help others when in fact, deep down, they're not even helping themselves. So you're getting into healing to distance from your shadow instead of helping the collective. Do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a a slippery slope. And one of the reasons I haven't gone all in on that journey yet is I'm still adjusting parts of my shadow self that need to be readjusted. And I think from an energetic perspective, that's the reason why those few workshops I did earlier in 2022 had such a low turnout. It was all meant for me not to work out because I hadn't done enough of my own healing yet. And perhaps on a dark subconscious level, I was doing these more for personal validation than the actual healing effects. But that, like I said, that's just a theory I have. No, I think that's really brave of you to admit to and realize. And it, I think it's crucial that we are that honest with ourselves if we're ever going to grow, right? So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be hard on yourself for that. I think that's natural, something that people have like a sort of lean towards because we live in this sort of exhibitionist society where, you know, if you're a doctor, oh, it's very obvious. If you're a lawyer, it's very obvious. You know, if you're a bus driver, it's very obvious. Like you're, if you accomplish anything low, you know, meager or grand, you know, it's, it's supposed to be something that you display to people. And when, when you go into this inner work, you know, how do you, there's no Reiki master uniform. There's no shaman uniform. I mean, there is, but I don't, you don't want to be caught dead wearing that, you know, (laughs) but anyways, that's the kind of, that's the kind of, you know, I think Ben, bend that our culture is bent towards so you know seeing that and recognizing that was probably like 
a personal boundary hurdle that you had to overcome in order to really get into this work deeper, right? If you never got past okay. that, well, you would maybe be only dealing in the surface level for until you realized it, right? So you realized it early on and and that's very critical. I mean, to go back to something you're saying earlier about connectivity and, and the idea that some healers are maybe not up to snuff for the job because they haven't done the, the personal work, that's everybody at any point given point in anyone's life, like you need to work on yourself. You know, you can't go out and and clean someone else's house unless your house is clean first, right? I mean, that's sort of a simple and soldiery analogy, but that's, that's really, it doesn't need to be elaborated on much further. It's, it's something that I think, unfortunately, people don't have a familiarity with maybe because we have a sort of commercialism aspect to our culture that doesn't reward that right it, it mm -hmm. rewards the opposite it rewards those sort of more predatory qualities which aren't necessarily malicious like in the case of a, a person who's going out and learning all these healing mo modalities you know but they're not up to the job they're, I'm sure, a well-intending person if they're going and oh, learning yeah. all this stuff. But unfortunately, you know, they're misapplying their energy. They would be far more efficient if they spent the time on themselves, which is a tricky thing because how do you even begin that work? And maybe you, you're you trying to learn these healing modalities to go about that and you get lost in the in the way. For me, my guiding light has always been my intuition. And I don't, I don't know, you know, if this is a part of what you've learned, but I would feel like if I'm going into a course, that would be something I'd want to hear from my teacher. Like, okay, intuition is important because it would confirm all of my experiences so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know where I'd be without the knowledge to tap into my intuition. Um, I explained earlier after my first Reiki sessions as a, as a client, how it cleared me up and I started having, you know, uh, premonitions while I was sleeping and, uh, my intuition guided me as to which ones were positive and which ones were negative and doing this work and having more of a connection to spirit, your intuition only heightens. And here in the province of Ontario, we went through three separate lockdowns in over a year. And every single time they were about to announce one, I got this feeling up here in my upper solar plexus, like this tense feeling that was like, okay, something's got to go down. You're going to have to readjust your lifestyle soon. And coincidentally, as just some joke, I think I, I always was late for a haircut too. So I was about to, you know, book a haircut and they were like, no, no, all the hair salons are closed. And those two things together, I was like, okay, things are about to get weird. They're going to start shutting that stuff down again. And even before the first lockdown, I, um, I bought like an extra week's worth of groceries because I knew something was up. And because of that in my work schedule at the time, I missed the chaos of all the local grocery stores and people panic buying. So, I mean, and to elaborate on this, cause I was, I'm sure we were going to talk about this before we wrapped up is that, um, when you go into this highly intuitive work and the shamanic work, you start to get many friends of the animal kingdom 
almost following you around spirit animals, animal totems, power animals in the spirit realm. Um, I have my main spirit animal, which is the morning dove, which I usually see on power lines on when I'm driving, just sitting there and I can usually decipher if it's a blessing or if it's a warning. And some of that falls with my own internal clock and my intuition. So, I mean, it's the deeper you go in, the more this stuff is going to seep into your, your own awareness. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's the number one sign that you should look for when you're out throughout your day are the animals that sort of make their way into your view, you know, because there's so much that we take in throughout our day that maybe we don't recognize, you know? I mean, if you just stopped for a second and made the intention, maybe not you, Phantom Phil, but listeners, that you're going to recognize every animal that you come into contact with, even if you live in, you know, the densest city, maybe you're listening from Hong Kong or, or New York City or L.A., you're going to start to notice more animals when you set that intention and, and maybe even have some meaningful interactions with those animals, which I think is, is definitely a sign that you're, you know, you're onto something, right? Because it, it, they're never like accidental. They're always corresponding with what you're thinking about or what you're doing, where you're about to go, what just happened. You know, they sort of like are like the, punctuation of a certain like vibe i don't know that's the best way i could sum it up yeah a couple of things i'd like to share Mm. on that note is um these animals have several different meanings and online there are so many wonderful um websites available that can give you all these explanations and even for ones you see like in your dream or in the spirit realm um one example um A recurring one for me is a fox. Now, in the past, the fox has had a negative connotation, and that's part of the meaning of the fox. But when I've been seeing it recently, and you see these animals in unusual places, okay, I just want to point that out. Like, if it's springtime and you see a lot of robins or crows flying around, probably not a spirit animal. That's just nature being nature. But, like, when you see like a fox run down your street at like 11 o'clock at night when you're driving home. That's not something you see every day. Like that's a little unusual. Or if like, for example, I was stocking some inventory at my work the other week and a lot of things that were coming up were signs of the raccoon and the fox. And I'm stocking these mirrors that you put on the backs of car seats so like babies can look at themselves. And this one, and it's the very first order I'm working on for the day has a fox and a raccoon on it. And I'm like, and I had to take a picture of it. I'm like, okay, come on. Like, what, what is this? And my point with all that is, is that the fox has different meaning for me now than it did when I saw it, like say a year ago. And a friend of mine who's just kind of waking up to a lot of this stuff had a recurring sighting of foxes and it was a very negative connotation. And I forgot where I was going with that. So yeah, the fox is a big one. Um, and do you, you don't remember where the negative connotation, did they have like a a bad experience with a fox or maybe they, they saw a fox after something bad happened to them? One of the, one of the meanings behind 
the spirit animal meanings behind a fox is trickery and deception. So if something like that might be going on in your life and your intuition is kind of telling you so, then that's likely what it is. Right. Whereas with me seeing the fox recently, I wasn't getting that feeling in my upper solar plexus. So I knew it wasn't negative if you catch my drift. Right. Yeah, I've had a, a one or two. I mean, I can't place where I was in my life at that time and what uh, what the fox could have meant. But I do remember having a very strange encounter where around this time of year, before the first snowfall, uh, or maybe like the first like layer of snow, we were walking through this forest not too far from where I live now. And there's, you know, plenty of trees, you know, leaves on the ground. As I said, no snow, no leaves on the trees. And, and there's this brown fox, which I have only ever seen red foxes around here. I'm not sure if red foxes change their, their coloring over the winter, but I know some foxes, their coloring changes over the year. But this was a very strange encounter because this brown fox, about the size of a dog, I mean, just sort of small compared to maybe like a coyote, it was pretty small, but it ran, it passed us on like a sort of diagonal angle. As we're going straight, it sort of runs right by us and kind of as it's crossing our path, kind of looks over its shoulder at us and keeps on going. And just like within six feet, I mean, I, I think I was with two friends at the time, but you know, that definitely, you know, is enough to take you off your feet when you have those yeah. kind of experiences. Like you, there, I've been open to that my whole life. And I don't know if that's like the same for everybody. I don't know how often that kind of thing happens to people. Probably depends on where you grow up or where you live. But, but I think if you open yourself up to those kind of encounters, like even an animal as elusive as a fox will like come right into your like personal space. <laughs> a couple of other connections. I remember what I was going to say earlier. Um, when I see cardinals, like cardinals, a big spirit animal and a lot of people interpret it as messages from loved ones on the other side, which I don't think is wrong. I think there's a lot to that. But when I see a cardinal, it's always in a spot where it's very visible and there isn't a lot of red around. So it really stands out. It means I usually have to take a journey to the shamanic upper realm in my shamanic journey or in the physical, in the 3d, I'm going to get a major download from spirit. It's one of those two things. And my morning dove, you know how I say I usually see them on power lines, sometimes in trees. Well, if they're ever walking around on the sidewalk or on the grass, that means something major is about to come my way. And it usually has positive connotations. Like if I see that dove walking around, like almost right at my feet, that means like pay attention mm. <laughs> and it's never failed me. Like this whole concept of these animal totos, totems, excuse me, and synchronizing numbers, angel numbers, it gives me validation and proof that there is a higher power or there is a God, if you will, 
whatever. Like we live in some type of intelligent design. It's not just a random series of chaotic events. Cause in the last decade, like when this journey kind of started with me, like so many things in synchronicities, I can't even begin to explain. And I don't even have time to get into today, unfortunately. But I mean, I just wanted to bring that up because it's my validation that there's a higher power of some sort. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll get into that on your show. And, and I hope to have you back on this show to talk about some more of what we got into today. But Phantom Phil, if you will, tell them where they can find you, let them know where they should follow up and what to look forward to next. Because you, you seem like you got a plan for your next few episodes. So where we're at right now, Unexplained Incorporated, the first time in a seasonal format, will be wrapping up. The season finale will be on December 9th, 2022. New shows post Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find us on any podcasting platform, the main ones being Spotify, iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, the website is thephantomhub.com. That's all one word. It's going to be getting a major facelift in the off season because it really needs one. As for my social media, you can connect with Unexplained Incorporated. And if you call it Unexplained Inc., I'm fine with that too. Either or. Facebook, um, add Phantom Phil 3 on Twitter. Twitter's my least active platform, but I may be working with that in the off season as well. Instagram gets a little interesting because I have a friend who used to help me with the show who started an Unexplained Incorporated page. You can follow that. However, it is going to be eventually merging with my personal Instagram at Phantom Phil Unexplained. And when I say personal, like 98% of it is about the show. <laughs> so eventually the two Instagram accounts are going to turn into one. But a lot of the exclusives and breaking news are on the at Phantom Phil Unexplained um, page. And you can shoot me an email, Phantom Phil Unexplained, all one word. Um, no underscores at gmail.com. So real quick, Mark, I just want to tell everyone about the immediate episodes coming up and the plans for next season. So I decided to do a general overall theme for this season of Unexplained Incorporated, and I put little clues in each episode. Episode 12 on December 9th, which is the season finale. All of those are going to be brought together. We're going to find out what, in fact, the entire season was all about because I built it with specific intent and with a specific reason. And my next episode, episode 11, which will be the last guest episode for the season, featured Carrie Ann Fields, who is the host of Transcending the Matrix on the iconic streaming platform. Amazing woman from Down Under in Australia. And this one ended up being the second longest interview I ever recorded. It uh, is very close to broaching the three hour mark and it did not feel like it whatsoever. Similar to today, it had great flow. It didn't feel like that we're almost at the two hour mark. So a big reveal will be planned on the December 9th finale episode. And if you have time, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to episodes one through 11. If you are able to, um, they are a little 
timely and they are a little long, some of them, but uh, if you're really into this chat and what we're doing, I recommend you go do oh, that. Yeah. And I've already laid down the groundwork for the next season. The next season of Unexplained Incorporated is going to start on March the 24th of 2023. And then the episode after that will be on March 31st. And that will officially be the three-year anniversary of the podcast. And I don't want to spoil anything right now, but I have two major names from the paranormal field coming on the first two episodes of the next season, and they have never been on the show before. So I'm really excited for those opportunities. And that season will run till about the middle of June, and I will take a summer break and then ramp it up all over again in uh, late September. Brilliant. Wow, I love it. I love it, and I hope people do check out the whole season. Like Phil said, you want to go back and, and catch all those clues. December 9th, they'll all be pieced together, so get filled in with Phantom Phil. I love it, man. This is awesome. I look forward to following the future episodes as they come together, future seasons. It's a pleasure to know you. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show, and I look forward to our future conversations. But until next time, folks, you got a new podcast to check out if you haven't heard of Unexplained Incorporated before. And while you're at it, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into this episode with Phantom Phil, host of Unexplained Incorporated. You know where to find him anywhere you're listening to this podcast, whether it's Spotify, Apple, or any of the cool third-party apps. I prefer Podcast Addict. If you have an iPhone, Podverse also works. Check those out. Of course, we're on YouTube. You can check out the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast on YouTube, as well as the Esoteric America podcast. We just recorded a new episode this evening, so that'll be coming out this week. Um, more information on Illuminati Confirmed. Who knows? Maybe we'll be back at it. I just talked to Chris today. Uh, we don't know. Maybe I spoke too soon in the last episode. Um, either way, Juan and I will continue to do Patreon content. Speaking of Patreon, support us on the Patreon. It's the number one place to go. If you like this show, you want to get bonus content, you want to learn more about me and help this podcast stay on the air, Rockfin is the next best place to go. You can get all of the episodes early. I put the video versions up there. And if you like bonus content and early releases the patreon has both of those as well so look forward to that if you're on rockfin you can already hear the next two episodes one of which is with dave zed but he's dave zed comes back to the podcast he and i have done multiple episodes together 
seven episodes of the Elemental Philosophorum, which you can find right here on this podcast feed, and uh, one or two other interviews, this being one of those two. So look forward to that coming out this week. That's right, three episodes this week. Um, We've got the scene edition two. I've spoken about that. And also, if you're local to the Connecticut area, maybe even New York City or Rhode Island or Massachusetts, if you're willing to make a drive, we're going to be doing a Saturnalia Hermopolis tour of Strange New Haven. That's going to be this December 17th. So come on down to New Haven. We're going to meet at the Book Trader Cafe on Chapel Street at 3 p.m. And uh, yeah, anyone's invited. You're all invited. Come on down. Come for a tour. Check out what is strange in New Haven, especially those of you who listen to the show from Connecticut. I'd definitely love to see as many of you there as possible. So I know 10-day notice isn't the most uh, heads up, but hopefully you can make it. Uh, It is Saturnalia that day, and it is a Saturn-oriented city. At least that's what my research shows me. So we're going to be taking a tour and looking at some of the strange things going on in New Haven. If you aren't close enough to make it, well, you can go to the website. There is a tab in the menu called Research Blog, and you can find a bunch of information about New Haven. Uh, This is the information I usually present when I go on a show to interview about this subject that I've been researching, and now I'm making it available for the first time on my website. Now, if you're a fan of another podcast and you'd like to see me on that show, this is a great way to do that. You can send this to... um, let's say the Grimerica show or macroaggressions two podcasts I've already been on and say, Hey, have you seen Mark's talked about or doing this research? Why don't you have him on to talk about it? Obviously those two shows I've already been on, but if you know any others that you think I'd be a good guest for, don't be shy. Help me out. That's a great way to support the show. Uh, Especially if you like, this podcast and that other podcast, whichever podcast it may be. We all have our top fives. It's the end of the year, so I've been really happy to see a bunch of people sending me uh, their Spotify top five, and I'm in the Spotify top five with the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So thank you to everybody who has us in their top five. I really appreciate you, uh, especially everybody who's shared that with me on Instagram. If you aren't already following us on Instagram, please do. Uh, Only 20% of the audience follows us on Instagram based on the analytics. So help us out. Go to My Family Thinks I'm Crazy on Instagram. If you're not an Instagram user, maybe use Telegram. Sign up for the Telegram. Uh, It's about the same number of people in Telegram as there is in the Instagram. Uh, And of course... We have Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter. I just sort of post when the new episodes come out. So if you need that, follow us on Twitter. Um, Sometimes I post when the Rockfin videos come out on Twitter. Uh, Sometimes I get tagged in things on Twitter. Those are always fun to see. So anyways, 
that's about it for today's episode. Please buy The Scene Edition 2. Help support the show. Oh, and of course, our sponsor. How could I forget? Hitkit.us. If you need a hit kit, it's the number one way to get lit with the hit kit. You got your blunt, you got your joint side by side right there with your lighter. And wherever you're going, whatever you're smoking, whatever you're token, you could rest assured that your ganja is going to be safe and sound. All right? All right. So hitkit.us. Get yourself a hit kit today and get lit with the hit kit. As for me, I'm going to continue smoking. Have a little bit of this cornmeal patty and uh, kick back and enjoy this rainy New England evening. I hope wherever you are, you're immersing yourself and enjoying the moment wherever you are in the now. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine Questioning everything, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war of the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it, the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey, I embark with the squad Forever meditating on the concept of God Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I am walking a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian bases. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away, revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway, I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out, rob him for his plasma gun. Hop in the ship, take the controls. They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. <laughs>